Rather than go through the passage verse by verse and line by line today, I want to sort of give you a midrash story of the text that we've read. And traveling near the border of Samaria, ten men are on the edge of the town. They have heard rumor of this man named Jesus who is coming their way. These ten, perhaps living for months or even years, have lived apart because of their leprosy a disease that draws them together, living on the margins of life and the shadows of the world. They are unclean. They are throwaway people. The law of Moses prescribed that if a person had leprosy, he was to tear his garments, to leave his hair disheveled, and when someone walked near, he was to cry out, Unclean! Unclean! It was a horrible disease of the day. They are cordoned off from family and friends, and they are revolting street people of the ancient world. It is not mental illness or drug addictions that have gotten them there. It is an unfortunate disease of which there is really no cure. Rumors spread, and when Jesus would go someplace, long before he arrived, mobs would gather. And in those groups who gathered, there were all kinds of people. There were those who were merely curious. What is he going to do? What is he going to say? We've heard rumor about him. There were those who were his critics, who wanted to catch him in something, who wanted to set a trap and see him tried. They were threatened by him, the religious police of the day. And there were those who were in critical need. There were those who were sick and dying and ill and had heard rumor of a hope of what this man could do. He did not always heal everyone. Sometimes he would not do anything in a town or a village or in a gathering. Other times he would be up early and they would find him out and it would be late at night before they would go away. And the exhausted God-man would heal miraculously again and again and again. And other times he would withdraw and go to be by himself with his father. These ten on the sidelines have heard the rumor, and they are on the street, and they see him, and they raise their voice, Master, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. For them, this day could change their life, if what they've heard is true. If the rumors and the stories that they have been told from mouth to hand, maybe it would change their life too. The Master's response is unusual. In the past, Jesus has touched lepers, in the past, he has spit on the ground and made dirt and to mud and put it on a congenitally blind person and created new eyes. In the past, he's broken laws of biology, physics, science, nature. He's walked on water. He's calmed storms. He's multiplied, literally created loaves and fish to feed tens of thousands of people. He's caused all these fish to miraculously appear in a net. He's healed a person who just simply touches his garment. And the master here will do something different. Only a couple of times in the Gospels does he do this. But when he sees these disfigured men, he gives them an instruction, unlike anything he's ever said before. He says, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, Jesus is on his way to die. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to be crucified. 
And I suspect this is on his mind as he spends most of his time with his 12 and the disciples who followed them. He is fully human, do not forget. But even in that situation, when they ask for mercy, he says, go and show yourself to the priest. The Mosaic law given by God to Moses, Aaron becomes the first priest, and through the priesthood of Aaron we have the Levites, the Levitical priesthood. In God's law to Moses, known as the Mosaic law, the Levitical law, in chapters 13 and 14 of Leviticus, we have some rather gruesome detail of what this disease of leprosy was like. But the priest of that day who was of the Levitical order, who was trained, we might think of him as a diagnostics, an internal medicine rabbi, was the one to whom you went if you had leprosy. Or if leprosy was in the home, he came to the house. He was the one who would prescribe and diagnose and say what kind of leprosy it was. He was the only one who could say, you are clean, and you can now re-enter the communal life. Leprosy in that culture and time was the black mold of the world. Today, rabbis through different parts of Judaism are trained as health inspectors and food inspectors, and they have degrees in science and biology and engineering, and they are the kosher scientists and doctors and food inspectors of the day. And it goes all the way back to these contexts of Leviticus, that they were to watch over how these things were handled and how they were done. And so in antiquity, you would go to the priest to see what he would say and what he would prescribe and what he would tell you to do. In some cases, the leprosy was so bad that the house had to be torn down. The stones had to be tumbled apart and burned, and all the possessions that was part of that family had to be destroyed and buried. And so the priest held a lot of power in a sense, but in a good way, he was the one who could diagnose what was happened. That's how he was trained to know what to do. Well, without hesitation, these ten we imagine, walk rather quickly from the border of Samaria, I would suspect, toward Jerusalem. We don't know the distance. Let's say it is an hour away. And without hesitation, let's go show ourselves to the priest. After all, what's the downside? We live as ten men in a squalid condition outside the fringes of civilization, despised, diseased, throwaway people. We may as well do what he said, and off they go to show themselves to the priest. But something happens. Not what they expected and not what the reader or the listener expects. This is not a parable. This is a true story. These aren't the parables we've been looking at so far in Luke. This is a story. And so as they're walking along the way, something happens. It says they are cleansed in your Bible. The word is katharizo. We know the word catharsis. It's a cleansing. In Hebrew and Greek, the terms for being clean are a little different than we think of having just taken a nice bath or shower or gotten cleaned up. It is to be clean from an illness, clean from a disease. And as they're going, they're cleansed. We can only imagine, presumably walking quickly, and who was the first one to notice his hands were no longer disfigured and diseased and maybe open sores, and he pulls up his torn garments, and he looks at his legs, and he looks at his friends' faces, and they look at each other, and they're all back to normal. Instantaneously, 
without a touch, without believing in God, without exercising an amount of faith, they're instantaneously completely healed and cured. Just as they're going on to see the priests. And they hadn't yet made it to the priests. We can only imagine in the story, if the nine continued on and went to the priest, of course they would be pronounced clean. Of course they would be pronounced healed. But the conversation to them had to be interesting. Total speculation. But I think we can sense a feel of what it would be like living in cardboard boxes and dark alleys away from people, yelling unclean, begging for a living, hoping against hope someone would help you or give you something to eat, and all of a sudden being well, I would want to go home. I would want to go back to my house, my village, my friends, my family if they were still around. And I can imagine ten parties erupting very quickly. The blood labs came back. We see no more cancer. The pathology test came back. The margins are clear. The CT scan is now clean. There's no more disease. And when that happens in today, in our world, we go to five guys. We go to something really bad as a form of celebration. We eat ice cream and desserts and we indulge. Because something good happened. I don't think personalities are that different. But one of them, when he saw he'd been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. The loud voice in Greek here is, is phone megalos. Phone megalos. In English we make it megaphone. He's megaphoning glory to God. He's gone his way to the priest and he turns in Luke's writing and he's glorifying, he's megaphoning glory to God. What's happened to me? He's so overcome when he comes back to Jesus, he falls on his face at his feet and he gives thanks to him. And Luke tells us, and he was a Samaritan. From the top of his lungs, shouting out glory to God, now his face in the dirt at a man's dirty feet. Thanking him. And he's a Samaritan. The carpenter is going to respond to him. This Jesus will talk with him, but he really won't. The Samaritan glorifies God, he worships Jesus, and he gives thanks to Jesus. But we're left with this, this dangling concept of the Samaritan. The Samaritan is doing what no one else has done. What about the nine? Where are they? And the master asked three questions. Where were there not ten cleansed? Answer, yes. But the nine, where are they? And the answer to this one is the heart of ingratitude. And the others, where are they? Was no one found who returned, thirdly, to give glory to God except this foreigner? Now, you have to ask the question, why does Jesus send a Samaritan to a Jewish priest? We do not know for sure, but I think it's safe to conclude the other nine were Jews. And when you have a disease like that, it doesn't matter your background. You are together in a problem 
And so they've cloistered together because they all have the same disgusting disease of leprosy. The word foreigner would sting. It stings today. You hear a politician or a performer or someone use the word talking to someone as a foreigner, that could well be the end of his or her career. You don't use these terms. In the first century, this word is found only here in the Bible. It is the word allogenes. Allogenes. Allo is a word that means other, different. Genes is genus or race. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this other race? Further to me, pushing the point that the other nine were Jews. Many years later, some archaeologists are digging around Jerusalem, Herod's rebuild of the temple complex, and they uncover some stones, two of these stones. This one is about 13 inches wide, about eight, nine inches tall, and almost six inches thick, and inscribed in these unseal, all capital Greek letters, Flavius Joseph, Josephus, who lived about the time of Christ, 37 AD, and further, translates this and explains it. And all have been translated many times. But the second word is the same word Jesus uses for foreigner, allogenes. It says no foreigner is to enter within the bastulade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. And if you know your Bible stories a little bit, you'll remember Paul will come in Acts 21 and they will accuse Paul of defiling the holy place by bringing Greeks into the temple complex. Remember that story. But don't miss this. This sign is written in Greek. Not in Hebrew, not in Aramaic. It's like going to an English facility and seeing a sign written in Spanish. Or going to Europe, to Germany, and seeing a sign written in English. The audience is the foreigner, not the local. And Jesus uses the word in his context to say, this foreigner, this other race, is the only one that's come back to give thanks to us. We're pretty good at asking God for things. I don't know how well we all do. I'm pretty good at complaining to God about things. I don't know about you. But it strikes me, I am slow to thank God for things. I live in a context of assumptions and givens and expectations that are not even, they're they're seamless in the way I look at life. If then, if I do this, then this should follow. And that relationship of looking at God and life that way that that somehow in this process, when things don't happen well, then, then I ask God. It also strikes me, if I am slow to thank humans, I am probably very slow to thank God. We live in a great culture in the South. Everybody's nice. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hun. Sugar. People I don't even know in restaurants call me hun. Waitresses call me Sugar. My wife doesn't even call me sugar. (laughs) We're very nice down here. You hear a lot of thank yous. I guess maybe more godly people live in the South. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) 
but it's hard to teach it. And it's also ever-present when it's insincere. Jesus said to him, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. He's megaphoning glory to God. He returns. We don't know the distance. He falls on Christ's feet. He's praising God, thanking him. And Jesus says, stand up. Don't miss the physicality of the story. He's going. He turns. He's shouting glory to God. He falls on his face in the dirt at a man's dirty feet, thanking him and praising him and worshiping God. And Jesus says, stand up. Stand up. Your faith has made you well. Now, we need to think about this for a moment. We're not all ten healed. Yes. Only one has expressed faith. Do not miss this. This is the point of the story. All of them were healed. All of them are going to show themselves to the priest instantaneously, apart from any touch, apart from any rubbing or anything, you would argue they obeyed Jesus to go to the priest, which I would say doesn't matter. None of them have faith except the one. All they did was go on a walk, and they discovered they were well. And this one, the one that Jesus points out, the Samaritan, the foreigner, the despised people of the Jew. The Jews, even the Samaritan woman in John 10 says, you being a Jew have nothing to do with us Samaritans. The caste systems around the world, they're fighting right now in Egypt for who will control. And they always will. But this doesn't mean he's well in the same way the others were clean or healed. This means he's saved. In fact, the word Jesus used, your faith has made you well, could really, literally be rendered, your faith has saved you. Your faith wasn't what healed your disease. Your faith is what healed the disease, sin. Because you recognize glorifying God, you came back and recognized me for who I am. You've worshipped me. You've put your thanks in the proper place. Your faith has saved you. You are saved The ten were healed instantaneously. And by the way, there's no record of them exercising some amount of faith or losing their healing because they did not continue in faith. Luther said you don't have to get better to be well. I would modify it and say you don't have to be well to get better. Because you can be well and still be sick. You can be well and still be lost. Now, readers will either reject or embrace miracles depending on our background, our training, the way we're brought up, the way we are on our journey with our view of God. Cynics and critics have always will, always have, always will. They will till we're all gone. They will doubt and try to dispute the miracles of Scripture. The concept of supernatural, I say many times, is above nature. Supernature. It's above the laws of physics, science, biology, time. God breaks those rules because he made those rules. He put them in place to sustain it for his length of time. He's beyond it and above it and controls it. He can do what he pleases. And to heal a person instantly from leprosy is a miracle of biology and time and science that happens just on a walk. But we all get healed on the surface level. 
probably every other one of us in this room have scars on our knees from childhood injuries. Probably half of us have a line of some kind under our chin right here. Some of us, like me, with three or four stitches that sewed that back together on bathtubs, on swimming pools, on whatever we fell onto as a child. And it healed. Some of us have or will have major surgery one day. Oh, it's so fun. And if you're a very weird person like me, you like to know what they're going to do to you. So you read all about it, and now you can watch videos on YouTube. (laughs) Yuck, this woman said up front. See, I love that kind of stuff. You know, they actually have small chainsaws they use to cut your chest open and your hips apart. They they look like something you'd buy at Lowe's, (laughs) except they're made out of titanium and stainless steel, and they cost $80,000, not $99. And you plug them in, and they're just like a chainsaw. And they use hammers and files. Orthopedic surgeons are generally strong people. And you're just a piece of wood they're chopping on and cutting on and sawing on. And cardiovascular surgeons will cut your leg open and take out a piece of vein and crack your chest open and put those veins around your heart to bypass your clogged arteries and give you life. And they will remove cancers and you think this is bad. Read Leviticus 14. And they sew you up and then you heal. They do not heal you. Yes, they help. No question. Yes, they aid. We call them healers. They are not healers. They are cutters. (laughs) They are carpenters. They're seamstresses. They're scientists with great talent, degree, and education. But they cut you, your body will heal. We all are healed. We are not all well. At time, our body will change, and we will stop that healing process. God has designed this suit we wear to heal itself at some level. But the Son of God healed while not physically present. And did you see it? Was there no one found except this one? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the lost, the found. Now we've got the real story. No one found but this foreigner. No one lost who came back. The other nine, I would argue Jews. And he falls down on his face and worships him. The nine are physically healed, no doubt happy about their healing, but there's been no change in their disease. I think we get a view of God somewhere along life. Maybe it's Western culture. Maybe it's just humanity. That God is this great dispensing machine. Evidenced by the fact that we come to him when we have a problem. We hear stories of foxhole conversions, right? When we're in trouble, it gets so bad, then we pray. As a friend of mine often says, It's gotten so bad, I guess we better pray. When 9-11 occurred and we were in the Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area, schools that long before you were ever affected by this forbade prayer and Christian organization on campuses decades ago, 
My daughter came home from school on 9-11 and said, Dad, school broke out, and a prayer broke out in a public school today. Teachers and students were crying and praying in the public school. Wonderful in some way, odd in another, that it gets so bad, then we pray. God is some dispensary that when the problem is big enough and bad enough, then I pray. In my uh, all-boys prep school that I went to in ninth through almost, uh, I was supposed to go 9 to 12, but had a problem and had to leave at 10. But uh, the all-boys prep school um, that we went to was run like a military installation at some level by priests. And um, we had these banks of Lance vending machines, Lance candy vending machines and Coke machines. We have them today. They use dollars that have to be perfectly crisp from the bank, and even those don't work so well. And you, you go up to it and you survey health food, Snickers satisfying, a bag of Gorp unsatisfying, honey buns, Duncan sticks. What is a Duncan stick anyway? I think you could play catch with those things. You could probably break a window with them. Twinkies, the universal non-perishable food. And you look and survey and you put the bill in and it comes back out and you put it in and it comes back out and you put it in and it comes back out and then it takes it and you hit D6 and it makes some motions and nothing happens. You hit D6 again and it makes some motions and nothing happens. And then you push the refund button which, by the way, is not connected to anything. (laughs) And then you gently bang the front of the machine. And if no one is around, you might attempt to rock the machine. And my prep school day, there was a new student who'd come from another campus it's sort of like a new kid in the, new, in the old prison. It really was a bad situation. If a new kid came in midstream, he was a low-hanging fruit for torture. And in our lunchroom, he went up to the Coke machine and put in his money. And that, there was a Coke machine notorious for the Coke dropping and hanging. Now, in our school, when the priests weren't looking, many of us got food without paying. Because we learned how to work the machines. Well, he put his money in. The can didn't come out. He hit. It didn't come out. And he reached his hand up into the chute. He got down on his knees. He finally sat down and had his arm clear up into the Coke machine, stuck. Now, if you're a newbie in an all-boys prep school, you're already a target. It's like the bummer of a birthmark Dave Larson cartoon. And so he's on the floor, and you can imagine 9 through 12 grade boys helping him as he's stuck in the Coke machine. To which the priest removed us all from the cafeteria, called the company that maintained the machine, and an hour or so later, someone arrived with special keys to open the door to release the boy and get his arm out. I never saw him again after that. I don't know what happened to him, but um, memory fades. God, I did my part. I paid it forward. I prayed to you. I did what you told me to do, I think. 
I'm a good person. I'm better than those people. Why aren't you coming through for me? And we look at him as this great dispensary in heaven who can dispense to us our Snickers bar, our health, our happy marriage, our compliant children, the money we need, the job we want, the stuff we want. Master, have mercy on us, I put in my quarters. I think we view God this way. If we shake our fist at God because he has not given us what we want, does it say more about God or us? You see, we're all lepers. We're the ten. We're disgusting. We're depraved. We're diseased. We are all liars. We are all immoral. We are all perverted. We are all thieves. We are all deceivers. We are all selfish. We are all proud. And we live in a culture that worships all that and tells us to be that because you have the personal rights and freedoms to be that. And they have sullied and diseased that concept into a new form of depravity that I can be what I want to be, do what I want to do, and ironically, God help you if you disagree with me. All ten, only one's healed. We have a holy, loving, personal, gentle, kind, immeasurably patient, loving, keenly interested in you, God, who waits, who offers salvation, who offers forgiveness. He does not care if you put quarters in. He does not care if you bang the machine. That does not motivate him. The question is, we're all ten, but will we be the one? And what did the one do? He was humble. He repented. He turned. Don't miss it. That's what repentance is. He turns. He glorifies God. He falls at the Christ's feet. He worships him and thanks him. And he says, stand up. You're not only free of leprosy, you're forgiven of sin. You're not just healed, you're saved. You're not just healthy, you're alive. And you'll live forever. It takes a humble sinner to come back to what God offers, not one who shakes his fists and says, God, why don't you? And it's all in the story of Luke to the point, the two approaches to God. The humble believer does what? You come back again and again and again and again, and you ask forgiveness. And you come back again and again and again and again, and you ask forgiveness. And you come back again and again and again and again and ask forgiveness. And you come back again 
and again and again. And every time he says, I forgive you. Because he's loving and kind and patient. And he delights in a humble sinner who glorifies God, who falls at his feet, and who worships and thanks him. But he does not leave us in the dirt. He says, stand up. You're saved. A genuine faith is a thankful faith. And it really boils down to, are we a thankful people or not? Or is it what God has not done for us yet that we bang the door of heaven and we fold our mental arms and cross our mental legs because he hasn't come through as if that will make him motivated to do something for us? Here's the question for you. If he never did anything else for you or me, then what he has already done in giving us salvation and what we have today, if it stopped today, would you, would I, be ever thankful? I'm going to give you one minute to pray and thank him for whatever it is you need to thank him for.